Jesus wants an eternal, intimate love relationship in heaven with those he redeemed. Believers experience the love of God because Jesus, the Son of God, lives in them. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. the students, if you open the Bibles, to John 17, John 17. Uh, as you recall, we've been in the study of John now for several months, uh, about a year. Uh, John 1 to 12 is a record of Jesus' public ministry in Israel. It covers his ministry, covers about three years. John 13 through 17, where we've been the last several months, takes place in a matter of hours. It all takes place, those five chapters, on Thursday night before Good Friday. Jesus is going to physically leave his disciples, go back to heaven. He's going to die on the cross. Forty days after his resurrection, he ascends into heaven. And the scriptures are very clear here, beginning in verse 13, that Jesus loves his disciples with an incredible, unconditional love. And they're quite concerned that he's going to leave. They're anxious, they're upset. He demonstrates his love by washing their dirty feet when none of them will do it. He institutes the Lord's Supper. He promises them an eternal place in heaven. He says, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. He promises them that God will continually be with them, that the Holy Spirit will come. God will come and live inside them and give them power and protection and guidance through the Holy Spirit. He promises they're going to bear much fruit as they abide in him. And he also promises them hatred and persecution by the world. And then he promises them the ability to overcome the world through his death and resurrection. Now we come to John 17, which is really um, the lengthiest and most intimate prayer of our Lord to his heavenly Father in Scripture. And in this prayer, in essence, he asks the Father to fulfill all the promises that he's made in chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. It is the most uh, intimate, unusual prayer. We never see the members of the Trinity interacting in this degree of intimacy as we do here. So it's unique. Now, Jesus was constantly in prayer. He, He literally prayed without ceasing. He was constantly communicating with his Father. But this is the most intimate prayer that's recorded. It's also the longest prayer that's recorded. And it can be really divided into three sections. The first section is verses 1 to 5. We talked about several weeks ago, and Jesus is praying for himself and his heavenly Father, and he's praying for their joint glory. In verses 6 through 19, where we've been the last two weeks, he prays directly for his 11 disciples. But he also prays for us, who come afterwards, those disciples that will follow. And he prays for our unity, our oneness, and he prays for our joy in verses 11 to 13. In verses 15 to 17, he prays for the disciples' safety. He prays for their sanctification, their purity. He prays that they would be faithful to the Lord despite persecution. 
And lastly, today when we're going to discuss verses 20 to 26, he prays for future believers. So he's praying for disciples who will come to faith in Christ as a result of the 11's faithful testimonies. He's praying for us. He's praying for the church. And he's praying that we might experience unity with God, first, and with each other, second, so that the world would believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then lastly, in verses 22 to 26, he prays that believers will see his glory in heaven and fully experience God's love. So this is the last section of chapter 17, and in chapter 18, he's going to go uh, up the hill into the Garden of Gethsemane, and um, of course, we'll study then uh, the crucifixion and following that, the resurrection. So let's pick up the narrative in verse 20. This is the last part of this most intimate of all prayers between the Father and the Son, and Jesus says to his Father, quote, I do not ask on behalf of these alone but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Here's the principle, our first one. Vertical union with God produces horizontal unity with fellow believers. Vertical union with God through Christ, produces horizontal unity with fellow believers. So Jesus is praying for all the disciples that will follow and come to faith as a result of the eleven's faithful ministry and their word. Jesus says as a result of their word. Now the disciples' word is the gospel, right? It's the gospel message that was given to them by Jesus, which they in turn passed down to the next generation and that generation passes down to the next generation. And you are here because somebody for 2,000 years has passed down the word of faith, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, from generation to generation to generation. If that generation had ever failed to do that, you would not be here. So we can thank God that there has been faithful transmission of the gospel message. So the Holy Spirit goes one step further, and he superintends, really divinely superintends the apostles so that they could remember everything Jesus said. And they could supernaturally remember everything he did decades later, and they could write it down. So the Spirit of God gave them the ability to remember everything that Jesus said and did and record it in what we call the New Testament. And he did that so that future generations could read the Word of God and they would be saved by believing it. You cannot be saved unless you understand and believe what the New Testament tells us about Jesus and salvation. If you want to be saved, Romans 10.9 says very clearly, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, he came from God, he is God, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So we cannot come to faith unless we understand what the Bible says about salvation and how to come in faith in Christ. So the word of Christ in the Bible is the means of salvation. Jesus is praying for future disciples who will come to faith in him as a result of believing what the apostles taught 
and recorded in the Scripture under the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus then prays that his believers, his followers, will be one, one, unified. He says that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Which begs the question, what is this oneness, this unity that Jesus is praying about? Well, let's start out by telling you what it's not. He's not talking about organizational unity. This is not the World Council of Churches. This is not the ecumenical movement. This is not external agreements between denominations. It's not about finding the lowest common spiritual denominator and unifying around that, which usually happens in ecumenical organizations and compromises scriptural authority. So he's not talking about organizational unity. He's also not talking about uniformity. God created each one individually with unique gifts, temperaments, interests, abilities. Every single person is created in God's image, and every single person is unique. There is no one like you on planet Earth. And I can hear your spouse saying, thank God there's only one, right? (laughs) Yeah, your friends are saying that too. That's not true. Actually, they are delighting in your uniqueness. The Bible sometimes calls the church the body of Christ. And Paul writes that just as the body has eyes, ears, nose, mouth, hands, feet, and so forth, so does the body of Christ. Some of you in this room are mouths, eyes, ears, feet, hands for Jesus to do his work on planet Earth. And God designed every member of his body, every saved person to fulfill a necessary function, and every single person is equally important but completely and uniquely different. We look different, we speak different, we dress different, we think different, we have different interests and different abilities, and yet we're all part of his body. So God is not interested in uniformity. He is interested in diversity, not the politically correct version, but real diversity. He created everyone unique and precious in his sight. Thirdly, Being unified doesn't mean we agree on every doctrine. Some doctrines in the Bible are essential, right? The authority of Scripture, the truth of Scripture, the Trinity, the deity and humanity of Christ, Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, salvation by faith alone through grace alone, right? Some doctrines are important, but they're not essential. Prophecy, baptism, charismatic gifts, roles of men and women in the church, church government, and so on. They're important, but your view of them won't get you into heaven, and it won't keep you out of heaven. One of the problems in the church is we fight a lot about stuff that is absolutely not essential. If you're going to battle about something, make sure it's an essential doctrine that will get you into heaven or keep you out of heaven. Nothing else is worth arguing about. Now, there's also some doctrines that aren't important and they aren't essential either. They're just trivia. For example, who did Cain marry? I don't know. Where does the battle of Ezekiel 38 take place? Can you tell me who the specific identity of 666 and the Antichrist is? I don't know the answer to any of those. And they're not getting into heaven, and they're not going to keep you out of heaven either. So don't argue about them, right? 
Let stuff that matters matter and other stuff not matter. So the unity Jesus is talking about here is not organizational, it's not uniformity, and it's not peripheral doctrines. He's talking, first of all, about your vertical unity between you and Jesus. What is your vertical relationship like between you and Jesus? That oneness that you have with the Lord will express itself in horizontal oneness and unity with each other. As a matter of fact, if you're not getting along with each other, chances are you've got issues with Jesus. Because if you're one with Jesus, if you're unified with him, he is the author of peace, right? So Jesus was praying. He says, look, Lord, I want the people that follow me, that believe in me, to be as united with God as I am with you. Now, Jesus is united with God completely and fully. And his prayer that we would be united with God completely and fully was answered. It was answered at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit baptized all believers into one body. He's the one who made us one in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says, For even as the body, he's talking about the church, is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, you and I do not understand the hatred that took place between Jew and Gentile at that point in time. It was the most violent sort of disagreement. They despised each other. They hated each other. And Jesus is saying, when the Spirit baptizes you into the body of Christ and you're part of God's family, all this other stuff that separates you doesn't mean anything. Get over it. Get over yourself, right? We are one in the Spirit. So at the moment of salvation, everybody is, every believer is made a member of Christ's body. God the Holy Spirit lives in you, and he lives in every believer who comes to faith. So the unity Jesus desires between his disciples is the same unity that he has with his Father and himself. So how close are God the Father and God the Son? Well, Scripture says that God the Son is in God the Father, and God the Father is in the Son. And Jesus referred to that oneness he had with the Father throughout the Gospel of John. In John 17, he says, quote, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they, believers, you and me, might be one even as we Father and Son are one. John 14, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does the works. So the Father and the Son are one in the sense that they share what? The same identity, the same DNA, the same essence, the same nature, and yet the Father and the Son are different people. The Father is in the Son so intimately, it's, it's, he says, the Father does his works through me, through me. Jesus said what? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are, are one. So Jesus is praying that believers, those who believe in him by faith, will be as intimately connected with God, the Father, 
in the same way that Jesus the Son is intimately connected with his Father. Remember, the Trinity is what? A tri-unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Tri-unity means three in one. Both sep- three separate persons, one entity, one identity, one essence. What's interesting, what's utterly interesting, is all three members of the Trinity share the same life. And all of them love each other. Infinitely, intimately, eternally. Love existed between Father, Son, and Spirit before humans were created. Jesus is praying that that intimate life, that intimate love between the Trinity would be given to you and me. And we can't comprehend that. We have trouble loving people we like, right? I mean, they irritate us. So when we talk about the infinite love between the Trinity has been given to us, and the Holy Spirit, God himself, has come to live in us, our minds kind of go, oh, man, heavy, heavy, right? Yeah, it is. But that's what Jesus wants for us. When Jesus came to earth to become man, he became one of us, he became man, so that we could become one with him, so that we could have union with him through salvation. So to be in Christ, to be one with Christ, means to be in union, in communion, in fellowship with one another. It means that God lives inside you. Let me try and illustrate this. Remember when Paul was going to Damascus. He was called Saul then before conversion. He was going to Damascus and he was going to persecute Christians. And he was going to throw them in jail and he'd already participated in the murder of Stephen. And Jesus said to Paul, bright light out of heaven, threw him on the ground. And he said to Paul, he asked him one question. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Later on, Paul would write, I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. Here's the point. Jesus so identifies with those who believe in him that to persecute a follower of Jesus is the same thing as persecuting Jesus himself. When Paul assisted in Stephen's death, when Paul was putting people in prison, Paul was persecuting Jesus because Jesus lives inside every believer. So next time, just practical application, you lose your cool with a fellow Christian and start yelling at him, remember, God is looking in your eyeballs as you're yelling at him because God lives inside that fellow believer. So be careful who you're yelling at. Just think about it. Sometimes we are pretty convinced we're right, but the Holy Spirit lives in them as well as he lives in us. Paul learned that lesson. In Christ means being so connected with Christ in the same way as your arm is connected to your body. Would you say your arm to your body is pretty intimate? Would you say your head connected to your body through your neck, is that a pretty intimate connection? Yeah, when they cut your head off, you're dead. That's how intimate the connection is. I mean, it is like really, really important that your head is connected to your body and your arm is connected to your body or a branch is connected to a grapevine, right? Jesus used that analogy as well. 
We are so connected to God, we have his nature, his DNA. And we have his nature because we're his children. I want you to think about your children. Jesus said in John 1.12, But as many as received him, we're talking received him by faith for salvation, to them he gave the right to become what? Children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So at salvation, God gave you his life. He gave you his spiritual nature. He gave you his DNA in the same way that parents give their children their DNA, their nature, their character traits. You know, your children sometimes look like you, and sometimes that's good, and sometimes it's questionable, right? We've, you've all heard the saying, a chip off the old block, right? I've heard some of you say, as we age, I've become my father. Or I've become my mother. We have their nature for better or worse, right? At salvation, we received God's nature. Jesus said this spiritual connection between himself and the believer is as close to as a branch to a grapevine. The branch is in the vine, connected to the vine like your arm is, and it shares the life of the vine. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me, he who remains connected with me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So it's this intimate connection with God. That's the vertical connection that Jesus is praying for. He wants you and I to remain intimately connected and not separated from God. Human marriage is another example of this connection. You know, when we say, when we get married, we say that the two shall become one flesh, right? Which means that God supernaturally superglues two people together into one new entity. So you and me become us. And at the same time, you and me still exist. Because you argue with each other. So I know you and me still exist, right? <laughs> Husband and wife are still distinct, independent, individual persons, and yet a new entity, us, has been created. That's the level of intimacy even beyond that the Father is talking about here. So people who trust in Jesus are given God's divine life, and they have this intimate, personal relationship with God through Jesus the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in your life. There's an old classic booklet we've talked about before called My Heart, Christ's Home. My Heart, Christ's Home. It's about 30 pages, pretty convicting. When you trust Jesus for salvation, you invite Christ into your home. Your home is your heart. You invite him into the center of your life. Your, your home of your spirit is your heart, the very core of who you are. So salvation is not when you invite Jesus in as a guest. You know, have you ever had guests in your home? What do they say? Guests and fish stink after three days, right? <laughs> right? You've heard that. If you've had relatives stay for two weeks, that's, you know, a really long time, right? 
Salvation is not having Jesus as a guest in your home. Salvation's when you sign the title deed over to him and he's the new owner of the home. He's the owner of your heart. It is surrendering ownership and control of your life to him. Now, when Jesus comes into the home of your heart, he's going to do some deep cleaning. Because you've got sin and I've got sin. And he will, he will spend the rest of our earthly life deep cleaning our soul, right? Does he do that in your life? You ever get convicted of sin? Yeah, that's when he's got the deep clean steamer going and he wants to deep clean that, throw some sin out, throw some things out and bring some things in. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. What happens? Old things passed away. New things have come. And we say, Lord, how come you can't do that just all at once? How about over a weekend you just do the whole remodel job just from scratch? You wouldn't survive it, right? It takes a lifetime for the Lord to shape us more like Jesus. Because we like our old things, don't we? We love our stuff, don't we? Right? But God knows what we need. God knows what we need to get rid of, because it separates us from him, and he knows what he needs to bring into our life to help us draw closer to him. And he's the owner of your home, your heart, so we need to trust him. So in summary here, I know we've spent a lot of time on this, Jesus is praying for a vertical love relationship with God and believers, and that vertical love relationship will result in a horizontal love relationship with fellow believers. Think about it. When you look around the room here, what do we have in common? The most important thing we have in common is we have Jesus in common. We share a common Savior. We share a common salvation. We share a common life. The Holy Spirit lives in all of us. We share a common mission. We share a common destination. We're going to heaven together. Learn how to get along here because you're going to see them forever, right? That is what supernaturally brings us together is our Savior. Most people, they have friends based on common interest, and we have not only a common interest, we have a common life, the divine life of God in us. And you say, why does Jesus go all this trouble to to talk about oneness. Well, he says, so that the world may believe that you sent me. You know, most people in your life that don't know Jesus, they don't read the Bible either. Your life is the only Bible they will ever read. If we really lived as though God lived inside us, we would be transformed and the world would believe that Jesus, in fact, is God who came to save people from their sins. Since God the Holy Spirit lives in us, what should the world expect to see? The world should expect to see the fruit of the Spirit exhibited in our lives, right? The world should expect to see love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control lived out by us, not perfectly, but with integrity, with each other and with them. Do we love people who don't love the Lord? Do we exhibit joy in the middle of persecution? Do we have peace when our patience is getting tried? See, a life that exhibits the fruit of the Spirit is a book worth reading. People read your life like they read a book. It's a God worth knowing. 
Okay, moving on, verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Underline that. Here's the principle. Like Jesus, our glory is to sacrificially serve one another so that our unity will model for the world the supreme love of God for his people. Let me say that again. Like Jesus, our glory is to sacrificially serve one another so that our unity will model for the world the supreme love of God for his people. Now, the supreme example of Jesus' love and grace was the cross. But it also was the supreme example of his holiness and justice and righteousness. Jesus emptied himself of heaven's glory. Remember when he came to earth in human flesh to die on our, on our behalf? The glory that God gave Jesus on earth was the glory of humble service by dying on the cross. You can't serve more and you can't sacrifice more than laying down your life. So the cross is not a disaster. It's the high point. It's the glory of God's eternal plan of redemption. And like our Lord, we have been called to do what? Take up our cross and follow him. Live like Jesus. Serve like Jesus. Humble ourselves and serve each other in the same way Jesus served us. It is our glory to live for God's glory, not our own glory. So God's goal is that God's people would be united with each other in the same way the Father and the Son are united. And we should be able to do this. We all share the same nature, right? We are all God's children. We all have his divine nature and his divine life. We are one in the Spirit. You've heard that song, we are one in the Lord. So sacrificial service for each other is one of the best ways to express unity. If you want to love somebody, do something sacrificial for them. You ever tried that? It will be good for your soul. It will be hard on your selfishness. That's good. Your selfishness needs to die anyway. Jesus humbled himself on the cross and died for us because one, he loved his father, and number two, he loved us. When we love each other with Jesus' love, we'll humble ourselves and serve each other, and that will grow us in, together in unity. It will mature us in unity. So Jesus is praying that the world will see our unity, and they will be drawn to the Savior. And number two, he says, I want the world to know that God the Father loves his children in the same way he loves his son. God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. If that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what you're thinking. Because God loves his son infinitely, eternally, intimately, extravagantly. And it says, Jesus says, I want the world to know that you love your children as much as you love me. If you want to know that Jesus loves you, look at the cross. Look at the cross. Romans 5.8 says, but God what? Demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
In John 13, 1, it says that Jesus loved his own and he loved them to the end. It means to the max, to the ultimate, without limit. One of the reasons why genuine unity is so powerful is because the world doesn't know what it is. The world is attracted to loving fellowship, sacrificial service because the world is inherently sinful. They have rejected the Lord. Have you noticed that unity is very, very rare? Very rare. Because sin makes us selfish. And we're not interested in serving each other when we're into ourselves. That's one of the reasons why this genuine loving unity is so powerful and it will influence the world to believe that Jesus, in fact, is real because we can't love each other without divine help. We're all selfish little pigs. Sorry. You know I've said that about myself ever since I became a Christian. But unity is a powerful force for expressing the love of God to people. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Here's the principle. Jesus wants an eternal, intimate love relationship in heaven with those he redeemed. Jesus wants an eternal, intimate love relationship in heaven with those he's redeemed, with those he's saved. And Jesus says, I desire. That means he, he, he intends to make it happen, but then he actually does something to ensure that it happens. He prays that you and I will be with him forever in heaven, and then he takes action by dying for the sins of us so that we can, in fact, spend forever in heaven with him. Jesus says something very interesting. He says, I not only want them in heaven, I want them to see my glory in heaven. I want to see the glory that the Father gave me. And the word glory here means majesty and splendor, power and honor. We know that before Jesus came to earth, he was seated in the heavens on a throne, co-eternal with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, right? The glory of heaven was his, the worship of heaven was his. And as a result of him coming to earth, humbling himself, dying on behalf of our sins, Romans or Philippians 2 says, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name, which means he has glory beyond our comprehension. What's amazing to me that God wants you and I to live with him for all eternity. When I look in the mirror, I am amazed. What do I bring to the table that God would possibly be interested? I can't even live with myself a lot of times. Well, right? I'm a mess. And God says, no, I want you and all the people I've redeemed to spend eternity with me in heaven because I want a relationship with you, an intimate love relationship with you. John 14, 3 says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. What's the point of preparing a dwelling place? I will receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. He's talking about relationship. You can live together forever with God in heaven. Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. 
and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 4, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Have you ever thought about the fact that God has given us desires that cannot be fulfilled here on earth? Because they can only be fulfilled in heaven. God created us humans with an insatiable desire to see wonders. You know, we travel the world to see waterfalls, mountaintops, ocean beaches, great animal migrations, right? We go to the top of mountains to look through telescopes to see the wonders of galaxies and the stars and the skies. We go to concerts to hear music that move us and change us. We go to sporting events, including the Olympics, to see amazing physical feats. Something about us wants to be wowed. We want to be enthralled. We want to be blown away with something that will really satisfy us. And God created us in a way that will ultimately, we will only be fully satisfied when we see his glory. When we see his glory in heaven. What did Moses say? He prayed, oh God, I pray you, show me your glory. And Jesus wants his disciples to see the glory because he loves them. And he wants them to be joyful. He wants them to be satisfied. There will be no greater joy than face-to-face fellowship with our Lord. We will worship him, we will praise him, and it will fill our souls. God doesn't need our worship, but he deserves our worship. He is delighted in our delight of him. His glory is our good. We were created for his glory. And by the way, the only thing in the universe that will never disappoint us is him. You have lots of friends that are running around the world trying to fill their soul with the trinkets of this life. I mean, it's travel. Well, I've been to this place. I've been to that place. It's experiences. You can't believe we went to this restaurant in Cairo and blah, 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 blah. It's all the stuff of this life trying to fill the hole in our soul. You will always be disappointed with the stuff of this world. It's never going to ultimately satisfy. Only a relationship with the God who created you through Jesus Christ will satisfy your soul. That's what we were created for. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, On earth we see in a mirror dimly, right? Our vision is limited. We have spiritual cataracts. We can see spiritual things, but not with a great deal of clarity. We only see a portion of Jesus' glory. But as we gaze on his glory, the Holy Spirit transforms us, and we can see more and more of it. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all, here on earth, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image, Jesus' image, from glory to glory, just as from the Father of the Spirit. We see Jesus' glory dimly in a mirror, but when we see Jesus in heaven, it will be face to face. Face to face is like, have you ever held a baby? And you hold a baby, you don't hold them out here, right? You hold them close, right? Yes, say yes. I know you you have vision problems, so you got to have them close to see them really well. But when you hold a baby, you hold them right here. I mean, it's face-to-face. And you know what you're seeing because you're smiling. You ever thought about what they're seeing? (laughs) 
That's why they cry, right? <laughs> You're staring into each other's faces, and it's high def. You, it's clarity, it's intimacy, it's transparent, it's face-to-face. And we see Jesus in all his glory. We're going to be transformed into his likeness. We are made fully like him. 1 John 3, 1 blows my mind. It says, see, your KJV probably says, behold, right? Behold, John is just astonished how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. Beloved, now we are children of God and has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. The framework here is astonishing. When he says, behold, how great a love the Father is. He's ba- the Greek says, behold, From what country came this kind of love? From what land came this kind of love? This love is not from this earth. Well, duh. It came from heaven. It's divine love. And John is astonished that the Father would bestow and gift us with this divine love and call us children. And he's made us children through the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even more than that, when he comes again, we will be like him and we will see him face to face, close up, personal, and we'll be made into his image at once. So God's love is expressed not just for forgiving us, but adopting us. You know, you're his child, so what did he give you? Well, he gave you his name, He gave you his nature, right? You have his spirit. He gave you himself. You'll spend an eternity with him in his heavenly home. He not just adopted you, he opened his home to you and says, you come live with me forever. I'll give you my name, my nature, my gifts, my love, my spirit, myself. On earth, he's shaping us more like Jesus. When we see him face to face, we'll be completely like him. Verse 25. O righteous Father, Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Here's the principle. Believers experience the love of God because Jesus, the Son of God, lives in them. Believers experience the love of God because Jesus, the Son of God, lives in them. Interestingly enough, these last two verses, there's no petitions. Jesus isn't asking for anything. He's basically saying, this is what I've done on earth, and this is why I have done it. And it's interesting, he calls God righteous Father. By the way, the character of God is the very definition of what is right. Whatever agrees with God's character is right, and whatever disagrees with God's character is wrong. This world system ruled over by Satan is not righteous. They are ignorant and they are willfully unrighteous because they love their sin. They do not know God because they do not want to know God. If you want to know God, God is available to be known. 
The world doesn't want to know God because they love their sin. And the way to know God is how? Through his son, through Jesus. God is knowable through Jesus. The world rejected, of course, the son and crucified him. And Jesus said, I know you, Father. Well, yes, he is God. He knows the Father better than anyone. And Jesus, while he was on earth, he revealed God's nature and God's message to his followers. And as his disciples, we will know the love of God because God the Son lives in our hearts through ever through the Holy Spirit. We are in him and he is in us and we are one body. It's amazing to me once again to recapitulate this. God the Father loves you and me in the same way that he loves his son Jesus. Which means his love for us is infinite. It is eternal. It is relentless. It is overflowing. As his child, he will never do anything in your life that is not an expression of his love. Ever. Which means when you're undergoing suffering or sorrows or hardships or troubles or trials, those are an expression of his love in the same way that your five-year-old would say, Mom, if you loved me, you would let me do X. And you as mom said, no, because I love you, I'm not going to let you do X because there are cars going down the freeway and you can't take your wagon out there. <laughs> That's what we ask the Lord to do. By the way, Lord, let me take my wagon to the freeway because it looks like a lot of fun out there. And the Lord says, no, because I love you, I'm not going to let you do that. So the Lord expresses his love toward us oftentimes by what he says no to as well as what he says yes to because Father really does know best. The Bible tells us that God loves us. You know something? We really don't know what that means. Really? We have ideas because we believe it. It's true because he says it. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? We should all memorize this verse because the Father loved Jesus infinitely and yet he loved you and I such that he was willing to lay down the life of his Son and lay the wrath of his righteous justice on him so that we would be redeemed and have a love relationship with him forever. I want you to look at the last part of this verse because many of us sometimes struggle with if God loves me, why is this allowing why is he allowing this to happen to me? His love for you is he didn't spare his own son, delivered him up so that you could be redeemed. How can he not then freely give you whatever is good for you? Because what was ultimately good for you was Jesus Christ. What was ultimately the best expression of his love was his salvation. So if he's laid down his son, he won't withhold any good thing from you. Now, you may argue with him of what's good. You know, what we usually want is comfort. God, you know, if you could just give me more peace and comfort and less hassle and less trial in this world. Memorize this verse, and when you're in the middle of trials and troubles, read the last section. He demonstrated his love at the cross. How will he not also freely give us all things? And the implication is all good things, because he is a good God. That's God's love in action. 
We tend to doubt God's love when he loves in ways that make us uncomfortable. Your children and grandchildren doubt your love when you say no. And yet it's ultimately probably the greatest expression of love you have. Jesus in this chapter is pouring out his heart, prays out loud so that it's recorded by the disciples for our benefit. And in it, he's praying only the first five verses for his father and himself. The rest of the prayer is for us and for our blessing and our oneness and our unity with him and our unity with each other and our walk with him and our protection from him and our fruit bearing through him. If you want to know whether Jesus loves you, read this prayer. And put your name in the places. When he talks about them and they, he's talking about you. Okay, let's review and then we'll do prayer and praise with Tom. Verse 20 to 21, vertical union with God through Christ, that's what produces horizontal unity with fellow believers. So when there's a break in the horizontal unity, there's a problem in your relationship with the Lord. Number two, like Jesus, our glory is to sacrificially serve one another. When we sacrificially serve each other, our unity will be a model for the world, the supreme love of God for his people. Nothing is so unusual as loving service for the benefit of somebody else. Number three, Jesus wants an eternal, intimate love relationship in heaven with those he redeemed. We have a destination coming up. Heaven. And when you get there, it will be worth it all. I know that sometimes we go, Lord, is it ever going to be over? Is this world ever going to get fixed? Yes. When Jesus comes back, He's going to make everything right. But not until then. That's why we walk by faith. And lastly, believers experience the love of God because Jesus, the Son of God, lives in them. You have the very life of God in you. And that is an expression of the expression of the love of God for you through Christ. This is a very um, heavy chapter. There is so much in any one verse. I confessed to you when I opened this up. I said, God, you know I'm not competent to do this. My brain cannot comprehend these eternal truths. And the Lord said, this is news to you? It's, it, it is my heart, it is my thoughts, and I am infinite and you are finite. So as you read this, ask the Holy Spirit to open your mind to what he means and you and I will study this for the rest of our lives and we'll still be learning, right, the rest of our lives. So it is a great journey and a great privilege to be with you. Uh, next week, uh, Lord willing, John 18. I love you all now that you know. Do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.